listeners, my name is Craig Zerpolo, and welcome back to Why Science, a podcast about behavioral and emotional health research at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia. This series is produced by COBE, the College Behavioral and Emotional Health Institute, with the assistance of WVCW Student Radio and the Alt Lab at VCU. For more information, visit kobe.vcu.edu, wvcw.org, and altlab.vcu.edu. This show is supported in part by the National Institute for Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. Our guest today is Dr. Ananda Amstadter, a trauma researcher at the Virginia Institute for Psychiatric and Behavioral Genetics, as well as an associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry at VCU. Dr. Amstadter researches the genetic and environmental influences on resilience, as well as PTSD, especially within vulnerable groups such as military veterans. Amstadter. I'm Associate Professor of Psychiatry, and I'm also in the Department of Psychology and Human Genetics as an affiliate faculty member. I've been at VCU for about five years, and since that time I've been doing a variety of studies on traumatic stress and resilience and coping in the aftermath of stress and trauma. Um, I work with a lot of different patient populations um, and clinical populations, including veterans, which is one of the topics I guess we'll be talking about today. Uh, And my research um, and clinical interests have always surrounded around stress and trauma and coping. How did your career in research begin? Did you always know that you wanted to focus on stress and resilience and coping? Um, So I went to the University of Washington in Seattle for my undergraduate work, and I was working um, on a variety of different studies as an undergraduate. I always thought I wanted to be a clinician and a a clinical psychologist seeing patients. And a few of my professors told me if I wanted to get into a doctoral program in clinical psychology, I had to have a lot of research experience. I had always liked research and liked science and the findings and the applications to health, but I didn't necessarily see myself going in that role when I was early in my undergraduate days. Um, And then I started volunteering for studies uh, as a research assistant, thinking that would be how I would get into graduate school to get clinical training, and it turned out that that was my love. Um, So that passion kind of grew, and I decided that I wanted the clinical training to really inform the research. So I think it really can go back and forth between research and clinical training and then the public policy and kind of dissemination work that we do. And to have the clinical training, I think, can help a lot with the various research ideas that we have. And so I went into a clinical doctoral program um, that was research-focused um, on stress and trauma, um, looking at neurobiological factors and how those interact with environmental factors of um, being exposed to a stressor or a traumatic event and how that affects somebody's um, kind of symbiotic response post-stressor. So we see this um, huge variety of different outcomes where a lot of individuals, most individuals are resilient in the face of big stressors or traumas. Um, However, we do see this minority of individuals, a smaller percent, who have persistent adjustment problems, um, such as post-traumatic stress disorder, alcohol use or abuse or problematic substance use, um, major depression, problems in their relationships or other health concerns. And it was a large interest of mine and continues to be to help understand how we can identify individuals who might need more help and more services to get back to that um, resilient level of coping um, post-trauma. 
So I was at the Medical University of South Carolina on faculty at the National Crime Victim Center for a handful of years before I got recruited up to VCU. So I've been working with the Veterans Affairs um, Research Center and Medical Treatment Center here in Richmond um, through a variety of my studies. We do recruitment um, through the VA. Um, and the VA had a training program, um, the MIREC, um, and with that, they partner the researchers and the trainees who are in that program with academic mentors as well. So they get both the VA kind of clinical and research side as well as the um, more academic side. You've had the rare experience of being a clinician and a researcher at different points in your career. In your opinion, what is the importance of the relationship between those two fields and how can people better bridge that gap? The idea that a lot of people have talked about is this kind of bench to bedside. And so how do we take science, bring it into the clinical domain, and then how do we actually make that work? Um, so one of the things that had been, I think, the most alarming to me when I was a graduate student is when we had um, some of our professors had talked about the idea that it takes on average about seven years for research findings to be translated back into clinical care. And that was really disturbing to me, to think that you know, people's whole lives and careers are devoted to discovering um, research findings that should be implemented, and that we really have this big lack um, in time and, um, and just the resources and the knowledge of how do we take research findings and translate those into clinical care. Um, but then I don't think it's a one-directional arrow, right, that just goes from research to clinical. Um, I think that our clinical interactions and being trained and being able to work with those different populations that we're studying can help inform our research ideas as well. So one of the things I've been the most struck with with some of our recent studies with veterans returning from um, Iraq and Afghanistan is really their just incredible level of resilience. Uh, that in, on average we're seeing individuals coming back with more than one deployment experience, that they have left um, a lot of times their families um, you know, back in the States to go over and serve, and that they are exposed to you know, a variety of different stressors, um, you know, both combat-related as well as just situational, you know, that their their schedule is different, um, the time in which they can, make, can communicate with their family is different. All of these things are changing, and a lot of them are out of their control. And the amount of resilience that they have and the amount of pride that they have that they were able to serve their country, uh, and that's one of the main reasons um, that they report to us that they want to actually participate in our studies, is that they want their experience to be um, learned about, and that hopefully what we learn in the study can help future service members. Um, so we, although we compensate uh, all of our veterans um, for participating in our studies, a lot of times they ask that you know not to be compensated. They don't even want that money. So we ask them to just take it and donate it um, to whatever organization they would want because we want to to compensate them for their time. But they feel that they are doing it to give back um, to the community and that they think that research is a really crucial part of helping understand the different both strength factors as well as risk factors that they had, and they're hoping that we can then use that to improve care for future generations of service members. Are there any specific challenges that you face working with veterans as opposed to other groups? One of the differences that we see um, with our service members when they return back and often go to school um, and start integrating back into civilian life, all of these experiences that they've had have um, done a couple things for them. I mean, one, 
Um, it's given them a new viewpoint and a new vantage point, so they have more real-life experience than your average 18-year-old student who had moved out of mom and dad's house and then comes to college. And, you know, that for them is the natural next step. And then our service members often, you know, have had five, six years of service and then are integrating back into college life. And so they're, you know, significantly older, um, both chronologically as well as um, often mentally, um, that they have all of this experience. And for them, you know, often they see college as this great gift, um, you know, especially with all of the services that are afforded to them for their service to be able to have their tuition covered. They take college so seriously. Mm-hmm. And for them, they are gaining so much for the experience. And it's something that they're really wanting to do as opposed to, you know, a lot of individuals who are, you know, graduating from high school. That's just what you do next. That's kind of your naturalistic next step. Um, whereas for our service members who are coming back, it is their active choice. And it's something that they're so dedicated to and that they can bring so much into the classroom. And I think one of the challenges that we have and really the calls that is a university system that we have is to figure out how can we best um, serve our service members to integrate them into the classroom, into higher education, but then also how can we let their experience be shared and really supplement that of our more traditional track students. And I think that experience and conversation, so whether that's using kind of small group activities, you know, outside of the big lecture classes um, for them to really have a voice or creating veterans organizations um, on campus where they can connect with other individuals and help build that social support network or helping them put into different service roles where they can use all of their experience to really um, help shape the university environment, I think is is a challenge that we, we need to step up to. And a lot of work is going on on campus um, to those ends, but I think we could do more. Can you tell me about how PTSD develops over time. What are some of the struggles that veterans face because of PTSD while integrating back into day-to-day life? So one of the things that we know about PTSD is that a lot of the symptoms are our body's naturalistic way to cope and adapt in states of high stress. And so in an environment where it's high risk, it's incredibly adaptive to be incredibly aware of your environment, to notice everybody in the room, where they are, what their position is, what they're doing to basically scope and scan and identify all of the threats. And that, that has major safety implications. Um, and that was um, something that in a different environment is very adaptive. And then returning and coming back into civilian life, um, it can be not as adaptive. And so I think one of our struggles um, is that we see with our service members as well as individuals who've anybody who's gone through a different type of um, stressor or or maybe traumatic event is how to take something that their body was doing that was hardwired that was very adaptive that then is no longer adaptive if that's still going on and so how can they recognize that and kind of retrain their body to react in a different way Um, and that's that's something that um, that we work with both clinically and that we try to study from a research perspective to understand how can the same behavior or the same symptom in one situation be helpful and in another situation be harmful. Um, so some of our, our fear learning, I think, would um, fit into this as yeah. well. Are there any factors that can predict whether someone is more or less likely to face PTSD after a traumatic event? And are there any factors that can tell you whether or not treatments will be successful? One of the things that our lab is doing right now is to try to understand what the different um, epigenetic factors are. So 
um, epigenetics is this very interesting field of study right now um, that has gained a lot of interest and attention in recent years. For any psychiatric condition, um, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, substance use or abuse, independence, uh, major depression, any of the disorders that we study commonly that we know have both a biologic component as well as an environmental component, um, those have a heritable um, portion of them. But we know that the environment is so crucial. Um, so, for example, I could have every risk gene for nicotine dependence, but I've never smoked. And so I would never be able to express um, any of my nicotine dependence risk if I did have that, um, because that environment um, factor is not going to be there to be able to trigger that. So for things like post-traumatic stress disorder, there are a variety of various risk genes, some of which have been identified um, and some are still being identified in active research studies that we're doing through our Psychiatric Genomics Consortium for PTSD. Um, but we know that obviously the, the environmental trigger of a traumatic event is a necessary but not sufficient um, condition for trigger for the disorder. And so we do know that a lot of individuals who are exposed to traumatic events don't get PTSD. Um, but we do know that a portion do. So on average, on a population level, we see about 7.8% of the general population uh, having PTSD at some point in time in their life. Um, within our returning veterans, um, because of the high levels of stress and trauma that they're exposed to, we're seeing on average about 20%, um, 18 to 20% returning with symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. But the other thing that we know, which is um, really promising, is that it's, it's treatable. Um, and it's, you know, especially in the, in the earlier days before a lot of this avoidance learning has really kicked in, uh, you can treat PTSD quite successfully in you know about eight to twelve sessions, um, there are also some pharmacologic treatments that um, that have some promise as well. But one of the um, types of treatments that we do a lot, working on this extinction um, training, is called prolonged exposure therapy. And one of the things that our lab is trying to do is to understand how that particular type of therapy can alter these epigenetic factors. Um, pre and post treatment and so we're doing a study right now where we're drawing blood at baseline um, and this is being conducted with um, individuals at the Medical University of South Carolina and then the, the individuals go through a course of treatment and then we draw blood again um, at the end of the treatment um, at about their six-month follow-up and what we're trying to do is to understand how those who respond to treatment so we see about 70% will respond to treatment do we see a reversal in this epigenetic code? Um, and so we're looking at methylation markers and key stress-related genes that might change pre-post-treatment as kind of a biomarker of treatment success. But then we're also looking for factors that we can understand at baseline where in the genome we might see methylation that might predict treatment success. So we do know that there's you know, about 30% of individuals that might not respond to treatment. And it would be wonderful if our science um, and technology can help us determine who those people are before having them go through that course of treatment. So that would help us personalize medicine and identify who might not respond, and maybe they need adjunctive pharmacologic therapy in addition to their psychosocial treatment that we might be doing. Um, so those are some of the studies that um, we're working on right now. If you're currently living with PTSD, is there any specific risk with participating in a research study? A lot of the concern I think we, we often get from outside public who don't know a lot about stress-related research is this fear um, that is not grounded in data that 
talking about one's mm. stressors um, or traumatic experiences might make somebody worse. And in fact, it's the opposite. So there have been so many studies that have looked at actually does participating in traumatic stress research help or hurt? Um, and turns out it helps the individual um, as well as the research community and the scientific community and things like that. But participants as a whole feel validated when their experience is being heard and being listened to and that their symptoms are maybe being put in a context. And then often, you know, in our studies, they're being interviewed by a clinically trained individual who can then help them understand, you know, gosh, you are doing well in so many different domains, but here's this one area that, you know, might be able to have some help. So can we can we call somebody and link you up with free services to help make that even better? Um, so we'll connect them either on campus or through the VA or through local veterans groups um, if we identify any area that, that might be um, useful to have treatment um, for. Um, and this is also making me think of just the other, one of the other large domains that our research group focuses on is resilience. And, you know, like we said, for if we're thinking about all of our returning soldiers coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, we're seeing over 80% of them not have PTSD, despite being exposed to significant stressors. And so that might be one way that we would define resilience. But this is something that Christina yes. and I have done a lot of work on and a lot of um, thinking about is just how, what is resilience? How do we define it? And how can we kind of quantify it to measure it and identify what's associated with it that then can inform prevention and intervention practices? So how can we do things that would bolster resilience? Um, so is resilience the absence of PTSD? Is it the absence of any psychiatric condition post-stressor? Is it also looking at um, relationship functioning or health functioning or functioning in school. I mean, there's so many different ways that we can kind of slice this definition up. How do you study something like resilience? Twins are this, you know, really great naturalistic um, population that we can understand um, the genetic and environmental contributions to different um, phenotypes. Um, so when we were came up with the definition of how can we really conceptualize resilience, one of the things that we did was to a cumulative um, count of, of stressors, of life stressors. So some of these were traumatic in nature and some of these were just general life stressors. And then we looked at general um, psychiatric distress. So the idea would be, you know, that if as your cumulative level of stress increases, the level of predicted distress would also increase. So we see kind of this nice dose response, right, that one stressor is associated with one level of, of distress, two is associated with slightly higher, so on and so forth, up till about 10. So we see 10 different types of um, traumatic or life stressors and kind of gives us the ceiling effect or this cap of general distress. That's about um, how much people can take. And that, that's cross-cultural. So uh, both in the U.S.-based studies as well as um, other cultures as well have, have found this kind of magic number of between 7 and 10. Um, stressors for significant distress. But we see that some individuals might experience one and have much higher distress than we'd predict. Others individuals might experience 10 and have much lower distress than we would predict. So one of the ways that we've mathematically quantified this is to save that residual. So if somebody's the degree to which they're functioning better than we would expect, um, is their, their mathematical degree of resilience or the degree to which they're functioning worse than would be predicted um, is their level of, of non-resilience, if we, you will. 
And we calculated this in a large twin study. Um, so we were able to then use the genetic relatedness between identical twins and non-identical twins to then calculate the degree to which their um, quantifiable resilience score was due to genetic or environmental factors. And what we found is about half of the variance was attributed to genetic factors, and that was like reasonably stable across adulthood. So we have longitudinal data, and we were able to look at about a 10-year difference. And their resilience score was reasonably stable, and the degree to which genes predicted that score was about the same. Um, so when we think about that, over half of what is making somebody resilient is what they're born with, but then the other half is environmental. And I think that's the really crucial piece when we think of intervention of what we can do. That if that number, you know, if we saw that 90% was biologic, that wouldn't give us a lot to work with. But given that half of it is up for, um, for potential intervention, um, and skill bolstering and all sorts of other things, that then leads us to the challenge of let's identify what factors account for that environmental component and then figure out how can we start building those into a clinical practice. So how much variance does social support account for and how can we build social support both during service and after service um, during that transition. There's obviously a lot of stigma around mental health in general, but what are the main difficulties culturally around PTSD research? One of the other things you just hit on is the stigma, right, yes. of, of stress and coping related what is thought of as more behavioral or maybe a sign of weakness, whereas, you know, a blast exposure and symptoms related to that, that's something physical, that's something that happened to them and, um, and is therefore, I think, viewed with less stigma as somebody having a stress response um, from maybe that same blast exposure. Um, and so that somebody's emotional reaction to that versus their physical symptoms tend to be kind of split and thought of in different domains. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the things that we um, hopefully as a society and as a university body can try to do is to help decrease stigma, help normalize um, the normative stress response and normative coping techniques that people are, are going through and the struggles that they're having to try to decrease the stigma related to that. Um, and that might help people decide that, you know, gosh, there is something I can do about this. And maybe I do want to go to, um, you know, see a various counselor or therapist about that and not just maybe be treated for the pain or the memory symptoms that they're, they're seeing from, you know, maybe their um, primary care clinic and things like that. Um, one of the other things we know from a research domain in that area is that accurate um, and effective treatment for pain mm -hmm. can then decrease somebody's emotional symptoms related to that. Um, so that's you know where we see this. You know we can't really split our what we think of our um, kind of psychiatric or more emotionally based conditions from our physically based conditions. It really is one and the same. And if we can accurately treat um, and effectively treat pain, you know, knee pain, lower back pain, that can help decrease symptoms of PTSD. And one of the mechanisms we think um, is accounting for that is that the pain is a physical reminder of that stress or trauma. And that continued reminder then leads to maybe more avoidance. Um, and that just maintains um, those symptoms. So if we can help decrease the pain, then that can help um, you know, basically help get the system back into a nice homeostatic function.
Thank you for listening and stay tuned for a new episode every other Thursday at kobe.vcu.edu slash podcast.